welcome to Immigration Review. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, I'm so glad you found it. Personally, and after many months now of doing the show, I suggest listening to the most recent episodes first, as those episodes will have the most up-to-date cases and a little better editing. But no matter which episode you listen to, I hope you subscribe, and I would love to know what you think. Please don't hesitate to email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com for anything at all. Now, here's episode one. Welcome to the first ever episode of Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin Gregg, and this week, like every week, we'll be reviewing last week's presidential immigration decisions, spanning the Supreme Court, Board of Immigration Appeals, and all circuit courts of appeals. You might be wondering who I am. I'm an attorney with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and I have a confession. I love immigration law. It's weird, it's complicated, and it's downright messy, but I love it. And if you're listening, you probably do too. Or you lost a bet. Either way, each Monday on the podcast, we'll discuss all of the past week's presidential immigration decisions. I'll talk about some in depth, provide holdings for others, and always give practical insights, rummaging through the week's decisions so you don't have to. Rest assured, this show has no bias other than to keep you up to date and enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. Finally, a quick disclaimer, this podcast is for educational purposes only, it does not provide specific legal advice, and the insights are my own. So without further ado, let's get started. Because this is our first episode, we're going to be reviewing a few more cases than usual. This week we're going to look at eight cases, spanning the Supreme Court, First, Second, Third, Ninth, and Tenth Circuit Courts of Appeals. We're going to review in depth a case from the Supreme Court and a case from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and we're going to go over holdings on cases from a bunch of circuits that runs the gamut from cancellation of removal to asylum, ineffective assistance of counsel, and even an attorney's fees case. So, time for the review. First up is a case out of the Supreme Court of the United States, Barton v. Barr, number 18-725, published on April 23, 2020. This decision is written by Justice Kavanaugh. It's a split decision with the five Republican-appointed justices in the majority and the four Democrat-appointed justices in the dissent, and it arises out of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Before getting to the facts and the law, it's important to know that this case also abrogates a contrary Ninth Circuit holding in Win v. Sessions, 901 Fed 3rd 1093, 9th Circuit 2018, and upholds decisions out of the 2nd 3rd, 5th, and 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, and upholds the BIA's decision in matter of Gerardo Delgado, 24 INN Decision 29, BIA 2006. So getting to the facts on the law, Mr. Barton is a lawful permanent resident, an LPR, who was convicted of drug, firearm, and assault crimes. Now the drug and the firearm crimes are not aggravated felonies, but they made him removable. The assault crime did not make him removable, but it is a crime involving moral turpitude or a CIMT. Again, Mr. Barton's not removable for the CIMT because he's an LPR, and LPRs are not removable, except in certain circumstances, for being convicted of a CIMT. But because Mr. Barton was removable for the drug and firearm crimes, he applied for LPR cancellation 
under INA Section 240AA, also known as the LPR Cancellation Statute. To receive LPR cancellation, an LPR must, among other things, have resided in the U.S. continuously in any lawful immigration status for at least seven years. But under INA Section 240AD1B, also known as the Stop Time Statute, the seven years in lawful immigration status required for LPR cancellation stops accruing when the non-citizen commits, quote, an offense referred to in INA Section 212A2 that renders the alien inadmissible to the United States. Now, if you recall, Mr. Barton committed a CIMT, the aggravated assault conviction, and a CIMT is defined at INA Section 212A2AI. Mr. Barton committed the CIMT before accruing the seven years, but the CIMT was not one of the crimes that made Mr. Barton removable from the United States. So the question is, is Mr. Barton ineligible for cancellation of removal under the stop time statute for the CIMT conviction that he committed before the seven years, even though that CIMT conviction does not make him removable? That question can be put another way as well, and the Supreme Court did. The two questions the Supreme Court asked were, one, can a non-citizen be barred from cancellation of removal based on criminal activity that does not form the basis of removal? Supreme Court said yes. Question two, can an LPR be, quote, rendered inadmissible, end quote, even if, as we all know, an LPR cannot be removed from the United States for being inadmissible? Again, the Supreme Court said yes. And the reason the Supreme Court said yes to that second question is essentially based on a finding that the rendered inadmissible language in the statute is descriptive and not to be taken literally. So that's essentially the holding. Mr. Barton is barred from cancellation of removal under the stop time statute for a CIMT that he committed before the seven years accrued. Now that's the holding. Now for some helpful hints and pointers, aka the good stuff and probably the reason that you're listening to this podcast. Okay, remember when I said that the seven years stops accruing when the non-citizen commits the CIMT that renders him inadmissible? Well, what if the non-citizen commits the CIMT at, say, year six and a half, but isn't convicted of the CIMT until year eight? Has the non-citizen still failed to get his seven years under the stop-time rule? Justice Kavanaugh and the majority say yes. In fact, that's exactly what happened with Mr. Barton. But based on any reasonable reading of this case, there still must be a conviction eventually. Because under most circumstances, only a conviction for a CIMT will render a non-citizen inadmissible. There are exceptions. But for almost all conduct that would render a non-citizen inadmissible, there still must be a conviction, eventually, even if it's after the seven years. But if the underlying crime was committed before the seven years, according to the majority opinion, that will bar an LPR or a non-LPR under the non-LPR cancellation statute from accruing the necessary time for cancellation of removal. However, practitioners, you need to know your circuit. At footnote 5 of Justice Sotomayor's dissent, Justice Sotomayor notes that there is a circuit split on this issue. That is, there's a circuit split on whether or not if an individual commits a crime before the seven years and is not 
convicted until after the seven years, whether that individual is still barred under the stop time statute. There's a circuit split on that issue, and Justice Sotomayor states at footnote 5 that the majority's holding in Barton v. Barr on this issue is dicta, it was not briefed by the parties, and it shouldn't be taken as resolving the circuit split. So stay tuned. Another interesting note on this case, even the Supreme Court now appears a bit uncomfortable using the term, quote, alien, using the term non-citizen instead. That's at footnote two of the majority's opinion. Another interesting note about this decision. This decision highlights the importance of statutory interpretation. The majority, the dissent, and the parties, they all essentially begin and end their arguments with statutory construction. They just come to different conclusions about that statutory construction. But this just goes to show that statutory construction is almost always the strongest argument you can make in federal court. But an interesting note on this even, to reach its holding, the majority recognizes that its interpretation of the stop time statute, INA section 240AD1B, makes the statute redundant. But then the majority disregards the statutory canon of interpretation against redundancy and superfluity, stating instead that, quote, redundancies are common in statutory drafting, end quote. So, at least to the majority in this case, the statutory canon against redundancy and superfluity, not so important. In fact, many statutes are redundant. Finally, while there isn't much good for respondents' counsel in this decision, there is an argument that can be made and a quote from this case that can be used for all forms of discretionary relief, particularly in all circumstances where a non-citizen has lived in the United States for many years. At page 5 of the decision, the Barton majority states that with the cancellation of removal statute at issue, quote, Congress struck a balance that considers both the nature of the prior crime and the length of time that the non-citizen has resided in the United States. Now, Board of Immigration Appeals case law also regularly discusses a similar balance for other forms of relief, with an emphasis on long-term residents of the United States and protecting family unity. So, practitioners, because a Supreme Court quote is always good, that is at least a quote from an otherwise unremarkable decision for a Respondents' Council that can be used in support of discretionary arguments for non-citizens who have lived in the United States for a long time, because as the Supreme Court recognized, Congress in the INA is attempting to strike a balance between the nature of the crime and the length of time and the ties to the United States that a non-citizen has accrued. So, let's try to make lemonade out of some lemons. And that is Barton v. Barr. So the second case we're going to look at in depth today is Peters v. Barr, out of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, number 16-73509, published on April 2nd, 2020. This is an adjustment of status case for non-immediate relatives, so obviously adjusting status through a spouse or as the parent of a U.S. citizen or as a child of a U.S. citizen, those are immediate relative categories. This case concerns the non-immediate relative categories like siblings or adjustment of status based on approved visa petition that's employment-based. For those type of adjustments, 
that is, non-immediate relatives, there is a bar to adjustment of status under INA Section 245C2 if the non-citizen has failed to maintain lawful status. Under INA Section 245C2, if a non-citizen with an otherwise approved visa petition has failed to maintain lawful status and is seeking to adjust status based on a non-immediate relative category, the non-citizen cannot adjust status. But INA Section 245C2 has an exception. If the failure to maintain lawful status is, quote, through no fault of his own or for technical reason. Now, the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security have narrowed this exception at 8 CFR Section 1245.1 D2I and II. The court in Peters v. Barr is essentially deciding whether or not the regulation is appropriate in light of the plain statutory text at 245C2. And the court said it is not that the regulation improperly narrows Congress's intent at 245C2. Looking to 245C2 and the word fault, the Ninth Circuit held that the exception applies, quote, when an applicant is not personally to blame for her failure to maintain lawful status. This is significantly broader than the specific factual circumstances defined by regulation by DOJ and DHS. So this is a big decision. In order to get to this point, the court defined the word fault as used in the statute and found that the regulation improperly narrowed the plain text of the statute, i.e. the word fault. Now this argument that regulations are improper when they narrow or expand the statutory text is applicable in all cases at immigration law. There are many regulations that narrow or expand the plain text of the INA, or at least there is an argument to be made that the regulation expands or narrows Congress's statute impermissibly. And so this case can be cited for way larger purposes than merely 245C2's exception and gets really into the weeds of administrative law itself. When practitioners are faced with a regulation that is harmful to their client and the statute is beneficial to their client, this case provides the roadmap to arguing that the court is bound by the statute rather than the regulation. So back to the facts of Peters v. Barr, what kind of conduct meets the exception? In this case, the attorney's failure to file a necessary petition meets the exception, even though, again, this factual circumstance is not specifically delineated at 8 CFR section 1245.1 D2I and II. In this case, the attorney timely filed an I-129, but didn't include two new required forms. So USCIS rejected the petition. The attorney claims that he submitted the form when USCIS notified him that it was necessary. But USCIS claims it never received the updated forms. The court held that, quote, an applicant cannot be regarded as personally responsible for failing to maintain lawful status when that failure occurs due to a mistake on her lawyer's part. The, quote, key question, according to the Ninth Circuit, is whether it was, quote, reasonable for the alien to rely on her lawyer. Now, as many of you listeners are probably thinking yourself, this reasonableness standard 
is applicable in almost all circumstances in which a non-citizen is represented by counsel before USCIS or before the court. Because, of course, with all non-citizens before USCIS or an immigration court, it is reasonable for them to rely on the advice of counsel. And there is many, many cases in all circuits explaining the complexity of immigration law and why it's reasonable for non-citizens to rely on the advice of counsel. So in conclusion, this case potentially opens up the door to a wide range of individuals who would otherwise be ineligible to adjust status for failing to maintain their lawful status. Because the Ninth Circuit makes clear that the inquiry is based on a reasonableness standard of whether or not the non-citizen was personally responsible for her failure to maintain lawful status. We can envision many circumstances where the argument at least can be made that the applicant was not personally to blame for her failure to maintain lawful status, whether it was based on ineffective assistance of counsel or a mistake of counsel or circumstances out of that individual's control. Either way, this case stands for the proposition that there is a wide range of factual circumstances beyond merely those delineated at the regulation that allow a non-citizen to adjust status, even if they have failed to maintain lawful status. Now some interesting notes and practice pointers based on this case. First, at page 10, the court recognizes that the immigration judge made the right call by rejecting the very arguments that the Ninth Circuit finds are now binding upon immigration judges, and that is because IJs can't disregard the regulations. Nevertheless, practitioners, you need to make these types of arguments before the immigration judge and the Board of Immigration Appeals, otherwise a federal appellate circuit will likely find that you have failed to exhaust your administrative remedies. Point two, attorneys make copies of everything. We all know that, but an immigration attorney in this case was forced to go into immigration court and blame his secretary for not making a copy, and the IJ then rejected that explanation. It's not a position that any practitioner wants to be in, so keep all of your receipts, make copies of everything, and hopefully none of us ever find ourselves in the situation of the attorney in this case. Another interesting note, much of the discussion at page 12 of this decision can also be used to support a motion to reopen based on ineffective assistance of counsel, at least in the Ninth Circuit. And the Ninth Circuit makes clear that immigration applicants have no duty to question their attorney. And so that is an expansive holding that can be used in many contexts, including the ineffective assistance of counsel context. One final note, the analysis in this case at page 13 relies on other case law in the in absentia motion to reopen context, specifically cases defining the term exceptional circumstances beyond the control of the alien. So because this case is relying on that case law, practitioners can cite to this case for their in absentia motion to reopen cases specifically when based on, quote, exceptional circumstances beyond the control of the alien. And that is Peters v. Barr. Now I'm going to quickly go through the remaining six cases um, from the other circuit courts of appeals and describe the holdings in those cases and some brief tips from those cases. And I'm going to start with the first circuit and go all the way through the tenth. So the first case 
is Sudarasim v. Barr, number 18-1937, First Circuit, May 1st, 2020. And I'm going to just say right off the bat, I do apologize in advance for this week and any week if I do mispronounce some of the case names in these cases, and I will do my best to pronounce them correctly. So Sudarasim v. Barr is a case about a denied motion to reopen based on changed country conditions to apply for asylum, withholding, and protection under the Torture Convention. It is a family of uh, ethnic Chinese Buddhist Indonesians. The lead petitioner's husband was attacked by Muslim extremists and stabbed during an anti-Chinese riot in Indonesia in 2007 and experienced other harms. But the lead petitioner herself didn't actually experience that much harm, at least according to the First Circuit and the immigration judge and the Board of Immigration Appeals. The husband himself did not submit an independent asylum application. The initial asylum applications were denied by the immigration judge and the Board of Immigration Appeals. And a few years later, petitioners filed a motion to reopen based on changed country conditions. That was denied by the Board of Immigration Appeals, and that denial was affirmed by the First Circuit. One practice pointer from this case, there is a smart APA-type argument made by the petitioners at the petition for review, and that is the petitioners argued that the BIA reached opposite conclusions in materially similar cases. Because the BIA is an agency, it cannot look at the same set of facts or similar facts and reach two polar opposite conclusions without adequately at least explaining the reason for doing so. When it does, that's really an Administrative Procedures Act violation, and that's the kind of argument that the petitioners made in this case. It's a smart argument. It was ultimately rejected by the First Circuit because the other cases were cases involving Indonesian Chinese Christians, whereas this was a case of Indonesian Chinese Buddhists. So, next up is out of the Second Circuit, it's Scarlet v. Barr, number 16-940, Second Circuit, published on April 28, 2020. This is an asylum withholding and cat case involving a former Jamaican police officer. His claims are based on the fact that he refused to do contract killings for his corrupt supervisor, and additionally, he claimed to fear gangs in Jamaica due to the work he did as a police officer. The Second Circuit ultimately rejected most of his claims, but remanded the case for further consideration of the, quote, unable or unwilling to control standard under matter of AB 27 INN Decision 316, published by the Attorney General in 2018 during the pendency of this petition for review. The Second Circuit also remanded for, quote, further reasoned consideration of whether the Jamaican government is unable to protect Mr. Scarlett. Importantly, and this is not great for respondents' councils, the Second Circuit held that matter of AB's analysis regarding persecution and whether a government is unwilling and unable to protect an individual is due Chevron deference, including the, quote, complete helplessness to protect standard articulated in matter of AB. So that's not great for respondents' practitioners in the Second Circuit. The Second Circuit expressly rejected the contrary holding in Grace v. Whitaker, 344 Fed Sup, 3D, 96, DDC, 2018. As many of you know, this issue is percolating through all the circuits, and this is not a great decision for Respondents' Council on that issue. The Second Circuit also rejected a very unique argument from Mr. Scarlett that he didn't even need to meet the unwilling and unable to protect standard because in Jamaica, gangs 
equate to the government. They are so intertwined in the government that they essentially are the government. And so he need not show that the government is unwilling or unable to protect him because the gangs are the government. Second Circuit rejected this argument. A similar argument can probably be made in many countries, Honduras, El Salvador, and the like. The Second Circuit did note, however, that, quote, a close relationship between government officials and private persons may be probative of the former's unwillingness or inability to control the latter. So that's something, recognizing that it is still very important under asylum law to show that government officials have a close relationship with the gangs and other persecutors that an asylum applicant fears. Interestingly, the Second Circuit also remanded for the BIA to consider, quote, how the unable prong of the unwilling or unable standard as applicable to withholding claims might translate to identifying government acquiescence in torture under the CAT. So put another way, the Second Circuit wants the Board of Immigration Appeals to analyze whether the unable prong applicable to asylum and withholding has any effect when it comes to acquiescence, which is the standard under the CAT. Next, we go to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, Guzman Orellana, the Attorney General, U.S., number 19-1793, Third Circuit, published on April 17, 2020. This is another asylum withholding and CAT case, but the Third Circuit granted this case. Distilling the holding down to one sentence, quote, persons who publicly provide assistance against major Salvadoran gangs do constitute a particular social group, end quote. Again, Persons who publicly provide assistance against major Salvadoran gangs do constitute a particular social group. That's the holding. What are the facts? An 18-year-old Salvadoran citizen heard MS-13 murder his neighbors. Police interviewed him publicly, and he did not help the police, but he was seen with the police. And later he was attacked by MS-13 members, and he was warned against cooperating with the police. They called him a snitch. They beat him up a bit. And later they placed a gun to his head and told him that he needed to cooperate with the gang. He refused and fled to the United States. Some good quotes from this case for Respondent's Counsel. At page 13, quote, Our analysis remains the same, even though Guzman did not actually provide information to the Salvadoran police. Contrary to the IJ's unsupported assertion, asylum and withholding of removal under the INA may be granted on the basis of imputed, not just actual membership in a particular social group. Put another way, the Third Circuit recognizes imputed particular social groups. And it's irrelevant that Mr. Guzman Orellana doesn't actually meet the definition of the particular social group that the Third Circuit used, because again, he didn't actually provide assistance to the police. MS-13 just thought he did. That suffices. The Third Circuit ultimately remanded proceedings for further consideration in light of the fact that this particular social group is cognizable and based on the fact that one can have an imputed particular social group. Also important, the Third Circuit found that the petitioner suffered past torture and that he will likely suffer future torture and remanded for the BIA and the immigration judge possibly for further analysis regarding whether or not the Salvadoran government would consent or acquiesce to torture in the future. Finally, at the end of this decision, the Third Circuit discusses a Salvadoran government program designed to protect witnesses and those who cooperate with police, but then recognizes that the Salvadoran government has been completely ineffective at doing so. So this decision can be cited to for factual circumstances in El Salvador. 
Third Circuit is recognizing that even though El Salvador might be trying to protect government witnesses and individuals who help police, they are unable to do so. Staying with the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, we go to Calderon Rojas, the Attorney General U.S., number 19-2332, Third Circuit, published on April 27, 2020. This is a petition for review of an ineffective assistance of counsel motion to reopen. And again, the Third Circuit granted the petition. The Third Circuit starts off with a pretty powerful quote that I think, as immigration practitioners, it's good to know, maybe good to cite, and good to remember. And that quote is as such. I'm going to quote the whole thing. Quote, Immigration law is a field in which fair, accurate fact-finding is of critical importance. The need in immigration proceedings for effective attorneys who can competently marshal the evidence on each side is therefore of commensurate importance. Yet aliens, often poor, often non-English speaking, are disproportionately saddled with low-quality counsel, and the consequences can be drastic. So I think that's a pretty important quote, recognizes the importance of competent counsel. The petitioner was represented by an attorney who was eventually disbarred. That attorney, in this case, failed to present non-LPR cancellation of removal evidence, specifically extensive medical evidence related to the petitioner's children. The attorney failed to meaningfully make an asylum claim, and so the IJ eventually actually deemed that asylum claim abandoned. And the attorney failed to visit the client in detention and failed to keep the client apprised of his case. The Third Circuit recognized that non-citizens have due process rights to effective assistance of counsel and that circuit courts have jurisdiction to review even if the ultimate relief sought, such as cancellation of removal or asylum, is a discretionary form of relief. Now, there is a circuit split on this latter issue, that is, the jurisdiction, whether the ultimate form of relief is discretionary, and the Third Circuit does an overview of those circuits at footnote 3. Turning to the related issue of prejudice, which is a necessary component of any ineffective assistance of counsel claim, the Third Circuit holds, quote, the familiar standard for prejudice in an ineffective assistance of counsel claim is whether there is a, quote, reasonable probability that the IJ would not have entered an order of removal absent counsel's error. The Third Circuit goes on to explain, quote, that reasonable probability means merely a significant possibility. In this case, the BIA's application of a higher standard was clearly erroneous. Put another way, an ineffective assistance of counsel motion to reopen does not need to establish that the respondent would have won his or her case with competent counsel, but merely that there is a reasonable probability that something would have changed, i.e. a significant possibility. Now, circuits differ somewhat on this standard as well, so know your circuit. What is a reasonable probability? Going to page 17 of the decision, quote, Calderon Rosas must show only a reasonable probability that his cancellation of removal claim would have been granted had his attorney submitted evidence of his children's medical hardship. The Third Circuit found this standard met in this case, based specifically on the ineffective counsel's failure to present evidence about the petitioner's older son's PTSD, and persistent and chronic adjustment disorder with symptoms of depressed mood and anxiety, that his daughter also suffered from depression, and that his younger son suffered from a speech delay. So with that evidence, the Third Circuit found that the ineffective assistance of counsel standard and the prejudice standard was met. 
The Third Circuit found the prejudice standard met despite the fact that the IJ held in the alternative that he would have denied cancellation of removal as a matter of discretion, likely because the petitioner had a DUI, although he was not convicted for it. And so the Third Circuit found the prejudice standard met because it deduced that had the immigration judge known about the medical problems of the petitioner's children, his discretionary determination might have been different. This is an important holding, because as we all know, immigration judges often make alternative findings. But the prejudice standard can still be met based on ineffective assistance of counsel if practitioners can tie that alternative holding to the ineffective assistance of counsel. Finally, the Third Circuit addressed the abandonment of an asylum claim, and it found that the counsel's abandonment of the asylum claim was not ineffective in this case. But the Third Circuit did note a Ninth Circuit rule from the case Hernandez-Mendoza v. Gonzalez, 537 Fed 3rd, 976, Ninth Circuit, 2007. And that rule in the Ninth Circuit is, quote, failure to file a necessary document creates a presumption of prejudice, which is rebutted where the petitioner lacks plausible grounds for relief. So the Third Circuit recognized this presumption in the Ninth Circuit. It didn't adopt it, but it didn't reject it. It just avoided it because it found that any presumption was rebutted in this case due to the deficiency of the substance of the asylum claim. But perhaps with the right facts, perhaps the Third Circuit and other circuits will adopt the Ninth Circuit's rule of a presumption of prejudice where a relief application is not filed. Turning to the Ninth Circuit, Perez v. Barr, number 16-71918, Ninth Circuit, April 27, 2020. This is a unique case. It's not really relevant to the types of arguments that immigration practitioners make in immigration court or circuit courts of appeals. The Ninth Circuit in this case held that the U.S. government has no obligation to compensate Ninth Circuit appointed counsel on petition for review. So this case involved a mentally incompetent non-citizen. As many of you know, mentally incompetent non-citizens are given counsel paid for by the U.S. government before the Immigration Court and the Board of Immigration Appeals, but not at the Circuit Court. Now, the Ninth Circuit appointed Mr. Perez an attorney, but then held that the U.S. government has no obligation to compensate court-appointed counsel before the Circuit Court of Appeals. So, a court-appointed counsel for mentally incompetent non-citizens does get compensated before the agency, but not at the appellate level. Not much else relevant to practitioners here, although at footnote 3, the Ninth Circuit holds, quote, We do not address whether due process may require the appointment of government-compensated counsel for mentally incompetent aliens in petitions for review. The Ninth Circuit doesn't address that issue because, again, in this case, they did appoint counsel for Mr. Perez. But it is possible that the Ninth Circuit or another court will hold that, like at the agency, Due process requires that mentally incompetent non-citizens be appointed government-compensated counsel, or at least be appointed counsel. So stay tuned. Finally, we're going to reach back real far to March 25th, 2020, and discuss Banuelos v. Barr, 953-Fed-3rd-1176, out of the Tenth Circuit. In this case... The Tenth Circuit held, quote, the stop time rule is triggered by one complete notice to appear rather than a combination of documents, end quote. 
Essentially, the Tenth Circuit has held, following Pereira v. Sessions out of the Supreme Court, that the stop-time rule is not satisfied by the combination of an incomplete notice to appear and a subsequent notice of hearing that contains the date and time of the hearing. In so holding, the Tenth Circuit is rejecting the BIA's split and bonk decision in Mendoza-Hernandez, 27 INN, decision 520, BIA 2019. The Tenth Circuit decision joins at least the Ninth and the Third Circuits in rejecting Mendoza-Hernandez. The Fifth and the Sixth Circuits have agreed with Mendoza-Hernandez. And the Ninth Circuit has now gone en banc on the issue. That is Lopez v. Barr, 925 Fed 3rd, 396 out of the Ninth Circuit. So, whether or not Mendoza-Hernandez is good law and will be deferred to is already the subject of circuit splits, probably going to the Supreme Court, so stay tuned. So there you have it. My name is Kevin Gregg from the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been the first ever episode of Immigration Review. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media. Like us on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. Or send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for another review. Until then, I'm Kevin Gregg, wishing you a wonderful week.